This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Fiji launches an investigation after a Pacific leader claims he was spied on by China while in the country. It's almost a slap in the face, so we need to be sure that uh, that actually happened. We look at the promise of high-speed satellites in the Pacific after some sailors were rescued at sea thanks to Starlink. And Fiji's men's rugby sevens team may be world and Olympic champions, but coach Ben Gollings admits this season they've been a bit unpredictable. So we've been looking at players and putting players in and changing things up a bit, which will not consistency. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, we start in the Federated States of Micronesia, where President David Panuelo has launched fresh allegations that China was bringing weapons into the country. He made the claims in a letter to Micronesia's Congress just a day before Congress passed a resolution reaffirming the country's ties with China. President Panuelo has previously urged Congress to switch diplomatic ties to Taiwan, claiming Beijing officials had spied, bribed and sought to influence senior politicians in Micronesia. Reporter Mackenzie Smith spoke to Graeme Smith, a fellow at the ANU Department of Pacific Affairs, and began by asking him whether the decision by Congress was a surprise. No, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not terribly surprised it hasn't shifted things. Um, I mean, not, not least in writing the first letter, he you know, basically accused the majority of them of having already taken money from China um, and so, you know, not only basically he could say that they were already bought, um, but certainly by pointing out that they've already been bought, you're, you're unlikely to bring people around to your point of view, if you know what I mean, because you're basically accusing them of being corrupt. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, was ever going to be a winning strategy in terms of, you know, winning over hearts and minds. And towards the end of his first letter, he does talk about, you know, financially this will be better for the country because they'll put money in the trust fund. Um, But, you know, I think accusing, I think it was something like 39 out of 50 members of Congress. I don't know the exact numbers, but that's what comes to mind. Um, He's basically saying, you know, the vast majority of you are already on the take. Um, and so if that's the case, then it's not a huge surprise that they've decided to stay with China. In his letter to Congress this week, Panuelo also compared the threat of China to COVID-19 before the virus was fully understood. What do you make of that? Look, it was a pretty odd comparison, um, I thought, in that you know COVID-19 uh, is something that your whole citizenry um, can can take precautions against, whereas I'm not sure... Um, what what the average FSM citizen can do about diplomatic recognition. It's not within their power. So it was an odd analogy. Um, There's a couple of other new things in there. He talks about um, China bringing weapons into the country, which I don't think was in the original. Um, And he also speaks about a follow-up visit um, to um, one of the governors um, by some Chinese diplomats to kind of shore up his position. So, um, So, yeah, there's some new allegations in there, which is kind of, you know, you, you assumed he'd said all there would be to say, but it seems not. So that allegation of, of weapons being brought in seems quite significant. Do we get a sense of whether it's the Chinese state that's been accused here? Yeah, or businessmen. I mean, he, he, in the first letter, he, he, 
he sort of has two problems of attack. One is against um, Chinese companies who are, you know, directly involved in corrupting politicians and offering to fly them anywhere. So it doesn't make it clear whether the, you know, it just says China. It doesn't say whether it's the state or whether it's these private companies. Um, but certainly in, in Africa, yeah, that's, you know, long been the trend is is um, to protect their business interests. They do start to um, to uh, arm up. But, um, but, yeah, it's quite an explosive allegation. That was Graeme Smith, a fellow at the ANU, that's the Australian National University Department of Pacific Affairs, speaking there to reporter Mackenzie Smith. Pacific Beat. And meanwhile, Fiji's Prime Minister says his government is investigating claims that the Chinese government spied on a Pacific leader while in the country. Sitiveni Rambuka said they launched the investigation following that explosive, those explosive claims made by Micronesia's President David Panuelo that he was followed by Chinese agents while at a Pacific leaders meeting in Fiji. Mr. Rambuka says if spying did occur in his country, it would amount to a slap in the face. For us, it is a concern, particularly when part of the claim was that uh, some of the activities that he had detected and reported uh, were supposed to have taken place in Fiji. We are responsible for everyone who comes into Fiji and we should be looking after their interests until they leave. Uh, So for someone to feel threatened by another power while in the dominion of Fiji, uh, is, uh, it's almost a slap in the face, so we need to be, uh, we, we need to be sure that uh, that actually happened, and if it did happen, how do we address it? That was Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka speaking there in an interview with Lide Movono. And you can watch that full interview on ABC's new current affairs show. It's called The Pacific and premieres tonight on ABC Australia at 6 p.m. Papua New Guinea time. Do tune in. And coming up in the next 40 minutes, we'll also be hearing from the host of the Pacific, Talia Olatia, and Solomon Islands reporter and contributor to the Pacific, Chris and Rita Armanu Leong. So do stay tuned for that as well. Now it's time to find out, as we do every day here on Pacific Beat, what's making news around the region. And as always, we're joined by Carl Evans to do that. Good morning, Carl. A very happy Thursday indeed with the uh, Chris, uh, sorry Easter break uh, yes, looming. Yes, not Christmas, but Easter indeed. Are you doing anything fun for the for the weekend? Oh, I'm sure I could fit in time for an Easter egg, Easter egg hunt, uh, yes. like, a, like a 10-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Easter is a time where we can all act like children and, and stuff our faces with chocolate. That's that's what it's meant to be for, right? Um, uh, and, of course, all, all the other important things like going to church and, and your religious obligations if you are, um, if you do follow Easter in that way. Um, now let's head to this very interesting response from the United States. Um, that's in response to Vanuatu's uh, campaign seeking an advisory opinion from the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, um, around climate change. Now, we saw that get up last week uh, on consensus. The UN um, states sort of or didn't go to a vote. They all said, yes, we'll, we'll take this resolution and take it to the ICJ. 
But the United States has something to say about it. What exactly did they have to say? That's right. So, yeah, like you just uh, uh, very well put, it's they're seeking that non-binding consensus on what international law has to say about climate change. Mm-hmm. However, the US uh, Deputy Representative to the UN Economic Council said he had some serious concerns about the pro- that the process would complicate efforts uh, the US is already making to help combat climate change. So this is reported by the Daily Post, who quoted this US representative uh, at the General Assembly last week. Uh, and he said, launching a judicial process uh, would only spark disagreement uh, and would hinder bilateral negotiation processes already in place uh, to reduce those emissions. Yeah, it's a very interesting response there. As you mentioned, yes, this is an advisory opinion that the International um, Court of Justice will put put out. They've been asked to, you know, contemplate what state's obligations are to climate change, particularly the harms caused by climate change, and they're going to advise um, based on existing international law. So it's very interesting because because as you mentioned, Kyle, this is non-binding. So it means that states don't actually have to um, follow what the ICGA advisory opinion says. So it's interesting that the United States um, representative has said that this would spark disagreements because it is indeed non-binding. But perhaps he's um, thinking that the advice itself might be dis- um, a bit contentious. Very interesting. But does he give any any alternatives? What are the best ways forward? He does. And funnily enough, uh, he thinks the best way forward is to just simply keep things uh, the way they are, despite all the uh, very ominous uh, warnings we've had in recent years. Um, He thinks diplomatic efforts are the best way to fight climate change uh, and not through any form of, of, say, punitive means. Uh, And he said the uh, climate change is already at the centre of US foreign policy and and doubling down through things like the Paris Agreement and uh, bilateral efforts uh, is the way to go on that front. However, he did recognise that the process will will go forward in light of the resolution's uh, resounding support. Yes, yes. Very interesting um, comments from the United States last week. Um, And uh, I understand that China also responded. Um, They sort of said that they um, do support in principle taking the question of climate change to the ICJ, but they um, sort of didn't agree with the specific questions that they were asked. And they again affirmed their commitment to those um, Paris uh, targets uh, that, that the US also uh, spoke about, as you mentioned, the Paris Agreement. Um, so interesting that two of the the world's highest emitters, that, that all eyes were watching, what they'd have to say about this ICJ opinion, um, have come out and, and sort of, um, you know, said that they what, they, what they're already doing is, is the best way forward rather than, um, <laughs> you know, what, what Vanuatu and, and uh, its supporting nations have suggested. So interesting um, and some might say not surprising response there. Um, now to some sporting news. In rugby union, the Four Nations Rugby Pacific Challenge is set to return. Tell, tell us more about this. I don't know about this challenge. Um, yeah, well, it's back. It's, uh, it's back for the first time since 2023 after it was, uh, like many other things, cancelled due to that. Uh, since that... 2023, we are in 2023. Oh, sorry, uh, back for the first time since 2020, I okay. should say. Yeah, uh, cancelled by the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, this was announced by World Rugby uh, last week, and they said Samoa is actually going to host the event in Apia from May 3 to 13 in what will be the nation's first international rugby tournament uh, in more than a decade uh, in the city. So they'll compete against the uh, national A teams uh, from Fiji, Japan uh, and Tonga in what will be a round-robin format held over about three match days. And uh, and what's more, they'll be uh, competed by locally-based players, all of whom will be making their case for World Cup selection in France. 
Yes, and, and meanwhile, Carl, it's another big weekend in Super Rugby as well. How are the Pacific teams shaping up? It's a big weekend, actually, a big, big Easter weekend, uh, particularly uh, in the Super W, uh, very much a marquee match for the Fijiana and Drua, who will uh, face the New South Wales Waratahs in what will be a grand final uh, rematch. Yes, from last year. Absolutely, yeah. Look, I'm sure the uh, the Waratahs will be very much uh, out for revenge uh, in that one following uh, following that defeat, so that should be definitely, definitely one to uh, tune in for. Uh, meanwhile, the men, they'll actually have a well-earned bye this week after getting back into the top eight last week with that impressive win uh, over the Melbourne Rebels while uh, Moana Pacifica, they'll face the uh, Crusaders in what I'm sure will be a, a tough game. Yes, well, I'll have my eyes on Fijiano. I followed that last year, and I'm, as, as regular listeners will know, I'm not the biggest sports fan, but have become, well, at least a fan of Fijiana. So I hope the um, Fijiana and Drua do, do their best and um, take the title again this year. Um, Kyle, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. And coming up in the show, we'll be hearing about The Pacific, the new TV show that's launching in, uh, well, launching tonight uh, in, in a, in a TV, television near you. And in fact, we'll have some special guests. I can see them in the building already. Host of the show, Talia Oletia, and reporter from Solomon Islands, Chris and Rita Aumanu Leong, will be joining us very soon. You don't want to miss out. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Hope you're having a lovely Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Could high-speed satellite internet be your lifesaver when stranded in the Pacific? That was the case for the crew on one yacht sailing from the Galapagos Islands to French Polynesia. It was struck by a whale and sank fast. The rescue was thanks in part to Starlink's high-speed internet, uh, satellite internet. And to find out just how, joining us now is the Director General of the Pacific Community, Dr. Stuart Minchin, who's also a keen yachty and happens to have ordered, I understand, Stuart, a Starlink internet to set yourself up. Welcome uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Priyanka. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, and, you know, in this case that we were, I just mentioned there, the four people made it to a life raft. Um, they apparently activated emergency beacon, but it was actually nearby sailors, not the emergency crew that responded. They used their own Starlink um, system on board to coordinate their own response. And nine hours later, this crew was saved. They were rescued and, and you know, lived to tell the tale. Now, Stuart, you, you're interested in Starlink yourself. You picked up a set yourself. Why, why do you think Starlink has this capability, um, whereas older satellite communications like those emergency systems perhaps can't? What's the difference here? Well, I think the, uh, the crew of, uh, of Raindance were very lucky in a way in that um, they were actually sailing in a, uh, an organised rally with, with a, a number of other yachts in the vicinity. Um, they were able to uh, set off their emergency beacon, uh, but also to use um, a satellite tool called Iridium Go to uh, to send out a message uh, to the other yachts that were were sailing nearby. Um, those yachts then used st- um, their own Starlink terminals to um, to rapidly coordinate uh, uh, a rescue. Now, in a normal situation, a boat wouldn't wouldn't be sailing close to uh, a number of other yachts in that mm. way um, and would be, would be reliant on things like the the EPIRB, the Emergency Position Indicating Radio, radio Beacon, which um, would normally be their mechanism for getting access to uh, to rescue. Um, so they were very lucky. Um, uh, it, was, uh, it was a great um, use of the technology and it meant that the 
the yachts sailing nearby could use things like WhatsApp and uh, and Facebook to coordinate their messages rather than um, more cumbersome radio or, um, uh, or, or or you know traditional satellite uh, communications. So. Um, and, and, and Starlink, look, Starlink is a, an incredible uh, tool, but you know, the way that I'd um, talk about it is it's a bit like having broadband versus dial-up um, mm. connection to the satellite. Um, you know, the older technologies, you're dealing with short text messages, um, but uh, Starlink gives you access, if you like, to broadband access at sea. So it means that the crews were already on their, their social media and um, <laughs> and, and uh, engaging, so it was easy for them to communicate. Which is sort of unimaginable to be sort of in, in the Pacific Ocean floating there and still being able to yeah, access things like Facebook and WhatsApp. But, but as you mentioned, mm. it was sort of like a, a few different things. They were quite lucky to have these other yachts in, this, in, in, in the vicinity at the same time. I mean, if you were alone, I understand that your yacht has, has or you're planning to equip it with Starlink itself. If you're alone traveling through the Pacific Ocean, can you access internet with the current technology that we have um, using the satellite technology? Yeah, well, look, Starlink um, uh, is, a, is a game changer in that sense in the region in that um, uh, you can access high-speed uh, satellite broadband anywhere in the region using using this technology. Um, I would uh, absolutely not use it, though, as a replacement for the uh, traditional safety um, uh, material like like an EPIRB. The problem with a, a Starlink terminal is, of course, you need to power it, and it's hard to power it when your boat's sinking. <laughs> um, I'd rather have a, a self-contained device that has its own battery and, um, and you know, uh, also has the... Um, the standardisation of all of the uh, search and rescue organisations in the world um, making use of it in, in that sense. So I don't think it's going to fundamentally replace the technologies that we rely on for safety, but it is a, um, a total game changer in in many other ways uh, in providing access to um, uh, to services uh, that, that that we take for granted, if you like, in in populated centres that are that are well serviced by the internet, um, but for people that uh, not just yachties, but um, uh, people on remote islands that can now access, uh, um, you know, high speed uh, broadband in the region, and that's going to change many things for the region. It'll give uh, access to to telehealth. It'll you know, provide opportunities for education uh, remotely. Um, it will allow. Uh, individuals in the Pacific to um, to remain with their connected to their culture, their their ocean, their land, and um, and still be able to interact on a uh, in a digital um, marketplace, if you like, globally. Um, so this is a, a total game changer for the region, and um, uh, will will have big impact implications well beyond the sailing community. Yes, yeah. I mean, it sounds quite quite exciting, isn't it, Stuart, to, to think about the the ways you know high speed internet can transform the region. But but as it stands now, Starlink is pretty expensive still. I mean, for for boats, you're looking at several thousand dollars for the hardware, and then there's that fee for for, for the data per month. It's about fifteen hundred dollars now, which is which is again quite expensive and pretty out of reach for most people in the Pacific, isn't it? 
Well, certainly that uh, that version of Starlink is uh, uh, very much out of reach. Um, that the, that's the maritime system, which was really priced and aimed more at um, uh, equipping, say, um, you know, large uh, um, luxury um, uh, yachts and uh, and cruise ships. Um, there is now a, a version called Rome that's been released. Um, that's more like five hundred dollars uh, initial cost and then $200 per month um, uh, to to operate and that can operate anywhere on the surface of the planet so um, that that sort of price point is is a game changer it means that um, in you know what while the, every individual may not be able to afford that um, it's the sort of price point that could allow every village in in the Pacific to be uh, broadband enabled um, with with a terminal like this and and uh, and people using um, Wi-Fi to, to to connect to the terminal um, within their local community, for example, um, mm. uh, without having to the expense of laying uh, undersea cables uh, to to actually uh, connect these things. And in fact, you know, the cost of laying a cable is so high that it's only allowed really the major population centres to be connected rather than. Uh, many of the off, uh, outlying islands or, or villages. Um, so this potentially is a huge uh, boon for the Pacific. Yes, yes. And with those um, cables, uh, you know, as we've seen with uh, Tonga's underwater uh, volcanic eruption last year and and other disasters, those cables can be damaged and um, means communications is down. And I guess you don't have that problem with, with satellite technology. It can mm. particularly ch- shine in disasters, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. It provides redundancy that um, that's very uh, useful. Look, you know, it's fair to say that um, I think for for the connection of large population centres, cables still by far the the most um, effective uh, way to do that. But uh, Starlink um, gives you this option to connect everyone, and and that that is what is the uh, the, the big change uh, for, for our region because there've been the haves and the have-nots in terms of digital connectivity in the region, and um, having everyone having access uh, opens up many many possibilities for um, you know young people to to do business on the internet while still uh, living in their local village for for um, uh, opportunities to to uh, to work and create economic um, uh, opportunities online for um, for people that have been very limited uh, in in terms of what they can do uh, to generate economic activity to fishing or to tourism um, then uh, it opens many possibilities up um, that uh, that could be uh, really uh, positive for the region so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm are there very any excited by that yeah I mean it does sound very exciting Stuart but are there any other downsides you you perhaps f- foresee any risks I mean Starlink is is sort of a SpaceX um, technology which is of course owned by Elon Musk which has who has a bit of a controversial um, controversial reputation around uh, a number of his business, businesses particularly most recently Twitter um, are there any risks that you foresee maybe with his involvement or or more broadly to be so reliant on, on one company and and one form of technology could that be a risk look there's always uh, there's always those risks uh, when when something's new uh, I I would anticipate that having this available uh, and um, uh, profitable uh, will mean that there'll be other other parties move into this market and uh, we already know that there are plans underway uh, from a number of other companies for developing similar uh, technologies in the region so i think um, that 
um, that risk will will dissipate uh, over time. Uh, I think that uh, there's always uh, positives and negatives to becoming more connected. Um, you know, um, there's access to um, to you know uh, um, all the positives and negatives of the internet uh, mm. for for everyone uh, in, in the region. But I think that um, uh, we're well past the uh, the genie being out of that bottle and mm. um, and uh, you know denying uh, people access to uh, to the internet is not the answer. Um, uh, Particularly if you're wanting uh, to support um, development of uh, of people or improve people's development status in the mm. region and give them access to economic opportunities that uh, everyone else takes for granted. Yes, indeed, and and yeah, it is, is, is as you've been saying, um, Stuart. Very exciting to see where this might take us. Um, thank you so much for for sharing your insights this morning. No problems at all. That was Director General of the Pacific Community, Dr. Stuart Minchin, speaking to us about Starlink and the promise of satellite technology, not just for maritime safety, but around the region. You are listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Thank you so much for your company. And now let's head to the Men's World Rugby 7 Series, where World and Olympic champions Fiji sit in third place on the standings. It's a position that would guarantee them a place at the Paris Olympics next year. Samoa are 17 points behind their Pacific rivals in seventh place, but still more than hopeful that they too can secure an Olympic spot. But overall, Fiji's form this season has been unpredictable. They're yet to win a tournament... And they haven't been able to achieve the consistency coach Ben Gollings wants from his players. One of the things that I'm very big on is consistency. And I think what's happened this year is we've been in kind of a development mode. There's been no real break. So we've been looking at players and putting players in and changing things up a bit, which will not consistency. We've just been missing a beat at times. And a lot of it is mindset. A lot of players are probably getting to the point where they're pretty tired. There's been no real off season. So we've been pushing hard, but we know what the objectives are this season. Really, the focus is the top four qualification. But saying that, where we are now with three tournaments left, we want to really push. And that started last weekend in Hong Kong. So you sit third on the standings at the moment, 11 points clear of South Africa in fifth. As you say, top four, so important for Olympic qualification. But from what you're saying, you're not looking behind you, you're looking ahead of you. You think you could still win the title given three good tournaments in Singapore to lose in London? We will continue to learn and grow from the experiences we've been gaining throughout this season. But the focus is on how we finish the season now. We know as a team that we've got to finish strong. And then also taking that through into then really the Olympic build-up. The number of players that have been through the team so far this season, it feels to me like it's a lot. Does it feel that way to you too? It's definitely been more than last season. We're not trying to open the door willy-nilly. We've got to be strategic with what we're trying to do. But we also want to test players in this environment for the future, knowing that things will change on the World Series and the amount of tournaments is going to change. So we need to utilise the opportunities we've got at this level now. Can I ask you about one of the more perhaps controversial selections that you made bringing Napoleone Balatha into the team? There's been so much publicity surrounding him, the reason why he, he left the Fijian Andrua, his injury, who's responsible for his injury, and yet you brought him into the squad and essentially he's running around on one knee, isn't he? But, he, but you feel he can add something to the team? We always knew Naps could play, but it was also having Naps in the right condition. He's worked hard 
to get himself back fit and in the right position. And we got to a point in our season where we thought, actually, you know what, it's going to be useful to be able to utilise him because he's a world-class player. He's obviously an Olympic gold medalist and we want him in our programme. So the opportunity to select him these two tournaments has been a real positive, but it doesn't change the mindset in the future for Naps in terms of wanting to get his operation done so that he's fully fit. He's not having to worry about this knee and he can become an even better player than he already is. So people who might suggest that there's a health and safety issue here, the player is fit enough to play, but he needs to have the injury dealt with sooner rather than later. Have I got that right? Yeah, he's in a position whereby he can still run around and that's been signed off by doctors but the key is that he does get the operation done at some point we want to support naps and get that done sooner rather than later he's still able to function and it's incredible that he can but he does and he still moves and plays well but you know there was a number of players in his situation that played the season in drew and then they got their operations done at the end of last season and that would have been the target for naps but it, it hasn't happened it's, it's been a, it's a process that's dragged out that's partly been out of my control but now we have clarity and there's the opportunity for the operation we can manage the whole process a lot better. And looking ahead to this weekend, you, you once again find yourself in a pool with uh, Samoa, also Spain and Canada. On paper, Samoa are going to be tough opponents, but otherwise uh, you, you would seem to have a fairly straightforward path into the quarterfinals. But I think this season has shown that none of these games are straightforward. You got beaten by Uruguay, for example, so you can't take anybody lightly, can you? No, you could look at the pools and you could state that, oh yeah, there's some pools that look tougher than others, but ultimately you can't can't rest on any of the pools and definitely we won't be taking anything lightly this weekend there's no easy game at the moment and you've got to go out and earn every performance just you know from the psychology that Samoa will be disappointed from last week so they'll want to bounce back Spain are riding on a high at the moment and they've got a lot of confidence and you know they've been performing well and, and, and kind of giant killers this season they've caused a number of upsets and Canada are a team that can beat anybody on their day so for us we want to manage that well because it's it's important that we have the focus that sets ourselves up for the rest of the tournament so yeah I mean I, I can be I can be pleased with uh, the teams we're playing against but we're not going to be taking it lightly and following that through if we look at Pool A, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, Hong Kong, if Australia and South Africa are on form, they could do you guys a big favour by preventing the current leaders uh, from making the quarterfinals. That's not out of the question, is it? <laughs> Ultimately, for, I guess, all the top four, there's no guarantee nowadays that you're just going to breeze through to a quarterfinal. As the season has shown already, there's been upsets. We will manage our own destiny in that regard and wait to see what happens in the other pools. And that was Ben Gollings, coach of the Fiji men's rugby sevens team, on the line from Singapore. And he was talking there to reporter Richard Hewitt. And there are just three rounds to go in the men's world rugby sevens, starting in Singapore this weekend. And we will have that Pacific clash coming up. Samoa and Fiji will face each other in the pool round in Singapore. after, And that comes after Fiji defeated Samoa 12-7 in Hong Kong last weekend. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. And a new TV show on the Pacific called The Pacific will launch tonight on ABC Australia. And we have two stars of the show joining us this morning, host Talia Oletia. Good morning to you, Talia. Talia Falava, Priyanka. And Kristen Rita Almanu Leong. Good for the morning, Priyanka. Good morning to you, Kristen Rita. Good morning to you both. Um, Natalia, let's start with you. You're the presenter of this new show, The Pacific. Can you tell us a bit about it? What, what sort of stories will we be covering? Well, it's a huge remit. Um, mm. I think that 
people just go, oh, the Pacific, as if it's just one country. And we obviously know that it is not. Um, so we, the aim is to go to as many countries, to talk to as many people as possible. Um, and for TV, this is like a huge venture mm. to be able to hear Pacific voices and tell their own stories, I think is just going to be so game changing. And it, it is truly something that has been so long coming. So, um, you know, we're really excited. We'll, of course, have news. We'll have issues. We'll have sport, entertainment, culture. At one stage, I get my hair cut. Um, It's really, we're doing it all. We are trying to do it all. But the real big aim is to keep building so that we start with something that, you know, lasts for seasons that we can go to more places and also bring in more people. Like I know that you say that I'm the host now, but (laughs) I would love to see other people in this hosting position because it took me so long to get here um, that now that door is open. I want to make sure that other people are getting in for those opportunities as well. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, you're you're right. This is quite a landmark show, really, but you are biting off a lot. It's called the Pacific (laughs) and people will expect no less than than all of the Pacific uh, being covered, I'm sure. Um, But but um, but it's it's very interesting. I mean, Chrissy, this is all happening at a very interesting time in in Pacific media and in in Pacific's history, really, because there is so much attention now on the Pacific. And, and some might say, some might argue, not for the best of reasons. It's it's really geopolitics, the big C word, China, sort of looming its head in the in in the region as well. So how does that, how, how do you sort of wrestle with that as a reporter from Solomon Islands, which has been sort of at the centre of, of some of this um, interest, really? How has that attention f- been for you? Have, do you feel those eyes on you? That's right, Priyanka. I mean, you know, the big C word, um, <laughs> in a way, it's, it's, it's sort of like the blessing in disguise for us because <laughs> if it probably were not for them, um, I don't think we'd receive all that attention that we are actually receiving now. And so, of course, there's extra eyes, extra ears, extra hands mm-hmm. in just about everything um, in the country itself. So since that um, establishment of the diplomatic relations with um the C word, um, <laughs> Solomon Islands has been, you know, at the forefront of a geopolitical flashpoint. But of course, before that, Priyanka, really nobody cared. Um, mm. In fact, um, we didn't have whirlwind visits or definitely not three different countries in three days. Mm. So that's something um, new as well for us. And as a Solomon Islands reporter, you know, um, I, I wish that that attention on Pacific, in particular in Solomon Islands, is genuinely um, about strengthening bilateral relations and, of course, um, beneficial for its people, um, the Pacific people or Solomon Islanders or um, Nivans or Fijians, and to really address the key issues um, um, you know that are of meaning to Pacific people. Be it, um, For Solomon Islands, it will be the increase in poverty or... Um, limited access to basic services and 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 other ones that I th- I think they are more important than the geopolitical play here. So mm. very interesting. And um, currently, with the extra eyes and ears on, um, definitely I think it's not security concerns that are of the greatest concerns to us in the Pacific. Um, so yeah, I guess um, that's where we're coming from, Priyanka. Yes, yes. I mean, it's considering that, Talia, because it, it is a bit of a this balance that, that needs to be struck, right? We we are getting this attention. I mean, mm-hmm. even, even in Pacific Beat, we've noticed that there is this attention and this desire to mm-hmm. do more in the Pacific. 
There's also, you know, media can be used as a soft power tool, you know, it can be used as propaganda. Mm. So how do you balance this? You know, on one hand, there is this extra attention because of the geopolitics. Mm. On the other hand, this is not what the Pacific is about. This is not just what the Pacific is about. And it's not, as Kristen Mm. Reed is saying, priorities of Pacific people. And that's why I think it's so important for what the show is doing, because it's not just, you know, me and Chrissy. We've got Lithay in Fiji, Mm -hmm. Evan Wasuka, um, Johnson Rayella and a whole host of, you know, names that people will know here on Pacific Mm. Beat and in the Pacific region. If I say, you know, Scott Wade in PNG, Marion Kupu in Tonga, people go, oh, they're the ones that we trust for stories. But maybe those names aren't known in Australia because Mm. for the longest time, the way that Australia in particular has covered the region is to helicopter in a journalist who sometimes you will feel like they're not telling a new story. And, you know, when Chrissy was talking before about the geopolitic power struggle, the struggle that you guys are worried about is actually just keeping the lights on. You know, <laughs> yes. growing up in the darkness, it's a very different power struggle. And so having the media there actually be able to listen and to tell stories, but also it's this idea of caring, of actually going, I care enough about what you want that I'm not going to come in and just say, well, your biggest issue is China. And you're like, no, I'm trying to put food on the table. (laughs) Um, So I think that there is a real balance that needs to be struck. But I also recognise my privilege in this conversation. So I'm Samoan on my dad's side, Italian and my mum's. I grew up in Australia. So my experience of what it means to be a Pacific Islander is very different to what Chrissy has as being a lived experience, being on the ground. And so I have moments where I really have to, I I guess, sit with myself to say, is it my voice that needs to be heard Mm. right now? And there are times where I'm like, it's probably not, but if it's not my voice, then whose voice is it going to be? Do I need to stand up right now? And so, you know, I've, I've in this, in the hosting of this show, I've many times sat there and been like, am I Samoan enough to do this? Mm. Like, and I think that that is a pressure that is not really... I think, not acknowledged but not known by the mainstream media is that when we tell these stories, we also carry these stories. It doesn't just end when the deadline is over. We still think about those people. We still care because that's what it means for us. It's it's so important. And so I think it's bringing that nuance, which will be really important too. Yes, because that question of representation is so complex, isn't it, Talia? I mean, I wonder if you think about it too, Chrissy. I mean, unfortunately, there has been such a lack of representation representation of Pacific Islanders you know, in the media, telling their stories, as you said, Tali. Chrissy, do you feel this pressure of trying to represent a whole country, a whole region sometimes, um, but at the same time being one, one voice, wanting to have you know, your voice out there, but also struggling, at, you know, this massive weight of, of what that represents? Um, of, absolutely, uh, Priyanka, you know, as, as Tali had um, alluded to earlier, you know, um, it's about having that care and genuine care towards mm. Pacific people. And um, and I think through that care, it, it's also having Pacific voices, Pacific stories through Pacific journalists. And um, given this new network that we are, we are having now, it's, it's bringing in the Pacific um, voices and the Pacific care that Talia was was talking about earlier, and you know Pacific region has traditionally been under the, underserved by mainstream media outlets for a long time, you know, mm. long as I can remember, and so definitely it's a significant step in addressing this imbalance and Pacific representation. Um, it will also allow for people in Pacific to come 
to connect to mm-hmm. specific um, um, issues. And that's why it's very important to have specific representation. Um, it's, it's a long time coming, um, <laughs> like Natalie mentioned. And um, this, you know, I'm giving tribute to the few specific journalists who have sort of paved the way for young journalists like, um, like myself. But definitely Pacific representation will help raise awareness of unique challenges that Pacific people go through, um, be it uh, whether you're here in Australia or um, anywhere in the Pacific for that matter, but having Pacific voices and perspectives and um, importantly just sort of striving for accurate representation. Mm. Mm. And just on that, because it's so true that so many Pacific people, we're known because we're storytellers. Mm. That is how our histories were shared is through stories. And then to not be in the media telling those stories, there is such a disconnect there. Um, And so that's what I think is so important. And, you know, the old adage is you can't be what you can't see. And I was even talking to Johnson about this because he grew up in New Zealand and, you know, Pacific representation is very different to Australia, like being in the diaspora in New Zealand, even compared to being in Australia. Mm. And I was telling him that, you know, growing up, we only ever saw Samoa on our TV when the tourism shows Getaway or Great Outdoors travelled there. But we were always so excited excited when it happened. And he was just like, oh, I didn't, it's like a context. So when we say finally this is happening, this is finally a show where Pacific, the Pacific and Pacific Islanders are on on the news and you don't have to brace to be like, oh, is it a bad news story? Because there are so many stereotypes that get perpetuated in the media and that's the power that the media has. So like even for this show, one of my directives right from the get-go is I want to see smiling Pacific faces (laughs) on this show, which sounds like... Like a, a basic small, right yes. thing, but it will be it. Like every time I see someone smiling on any of the cuts we have made, I start to cry <laughs> because I think. I never saw that growing up. Mm. I had the pride, but I didn't see the joy. And to be able to bring that joy, it makes me cry tear up just thinking Mm. about it. But to be able to see that joy and to show what is possible, because, I, you know, throughout so many different Pacific islands, there's this, you know, there's this adage, if one succeeds, we all do. Mm. And that's what I that's what I'm hoping that we can achieve. I mean, it's very exciting to see that. And and um, if you are just tuning into Pacific Beat this morning, we are talking about the new launch of this new TV show called The Pacific. We have two of the stars of the show joining us this morning, uh, Talia Oletia, who will be hosting the show. And we also have Chris and Rita Amonu Leong, a very familiar voice to regular listeners of Pacific Beach. He's, of course, our present, uh, reporter um, and a Times presenter from Solomon Islands. Um, and uh, she will be also participating in the Pacific. Um, but I wanted to touch on what you said just there, Talia, and open it up to both of you, Chris and Rita and Tali. Because there is this this desire and, and a great joy that comes with seeing um, Pacific um, Islander representation. I, you know, I, I'm not from the Pacific myself, so I, I perhaps can't touch, touch on that. But certainly we've seen with the comments from the promotional videos mm-hmm. online, just an outpouring of love. Um, how's it been reading some of those comments, um, Chrissy? Have you have you had the chance to read some of this and or hear from your from your friends and family in Solomon Islands about what this show means to them? Yes, um, in fact, there's you know I'm still receiving messages and you know like I I, I spoke about earlier you know it's about people in the Pacific um, connecting to to 
through Pacific Voices and having that through the comments and uh, through the uh, direct messages and even um, just like, you know, it's those comments that uh, sort of lift up your spirit and you want to tell more of Pacific stories, you know, you want to raise the issues of Pacific people and, and that's what I'm getting from um, most of my friends and even family and even people that I'm not aware of around in the Pacific. So, Perhaps mm. Talia can uh, also. It's yeah, it's absolutely that. I'll give you an example. So on Tuesday we had the launch of mm. the show in Sydney, um, and there was a Samoan performance group who drove from Canberra to Sydney that morning to perform, wow. and that touched me more than anything that I've ever seen because for so long. So many people didn't even realise there were Pacific Islanders working at the ABC. So when I walked in, I was like, oh, my God, this is probably the most Samoans that have ever been at the ABC (laughs) at any time. Um, But I went up to the auntie who was with the group because I was so touched that they would make an effort for this show. And so I went up to just say thank you and that this mean, that meant so much to see, you know, that representation and that culture there that we could have at the launch. And she said to me, she said, you know, when the ABC reached out, I was a bit hesitant to what this show would be. But then we saw the promo Mm. and we saw the faces and we saw the people. And she goes, we have been waiting for this. We have been waiting for this. And, oh, my God, stop crying, Tully. (laughs) And it made me cry because that's, that's how I feel. Have you got you've got an auntie who's also saying that you've got like hopefully children who grow up and don't know what that means because they will always feel seen and feel heard and so I think that that was kind of the resounding takeaway with this promo is that normally when you put something out on social media people can be pretty critical pretty quickly but this time I felt just overwhelming joy it was like everyone just breathed out to be like like it was just this hope that we'd all been like maybe one day it will happen and then everyone's just exhaled to be like, okay, finally. And that's not to say this show is going to be like sunshine and rainbows and everyone's going to love us all the time. Like our job as the media is to hold governments to account. If we're not doing our job, if there are stories we're not doing, then we want to know, we want to do it well. But I think that the instant reaction was just that feeling of finally of relief of, you know, these these stories matter. And thank you for recognising that kind of thing. Yes, well, it does all launch, and and um, I'm sure that relief, those smiles, that joy, and also that that you know satisfaction of finally seeing a show like this come to life on the screens will will be amazing. I mean, it is going to air tonight at 6 p.m. PNG time, which almost up the top of the clock. And so I've got I got a very simple question for both of you uh, to end us on, um, Chrissy. I'll start with you. What are you most excited about um, quickly about this show? Oh, Priyanka, I'm most excited about the fact that one day or someday in the near future, when I mention Solomon Islands or Vanuatu or Fiji or any Pacific Island country for that matter, people will be able to identify it not for coconut trees and sandy beaches and tourist um, uh, locations, but for its uniqueness, you know, for its stories, for the culture and the people. And that's, and that's what I'm excited for, that this platform will allow for that to happen. Wonderful. Yes, I can I can um, join you in that hope as well. And how about you, Tali? I'm exactly the same, is that people realise the true magic <laughs> that mm. is in the Pacific Islands, that it's not just geostrategically important. It's important because of the people, of the places, of the culture, of that, uh, of the identity. And I mean, 
also I'm just very excited that one day someone else will be hosting this show <laughs> because it will be renewed for many seasons and there will yes. be a lot of interest and it will be a pathway for more stories to be told. Well, I can join you on that hope as well, Tali. A thank you to you both, Chrissy and Tali, and good luck. Congratulations. This is a massive undertaking, as you've both said, long time coming, and we can't wait to tune in tonight to see it all unfold. Thank you to you both. Bafatai. Thank you, Tomas. That was Chris and Rita Aumanu, Lee Young and Talia Olet here. And as we've been saying, you guys can say it with me, uh, it's 6pm PNG time tonight. ABC Australia's when you can tune in to the Pacific and see these lovely women and the other amazing reporters uh, on the show. That is it for Pacific Beat. I hope you have a lovely Easter if you do celebrate. We'll be back next week. Joining you again. Until then, have a lovely day.